Applications for the Techstars Tech Central Sydney Accelerator Class of 2024 are closing on the 22nd of May. I'm Kirsten Hunter, the Managing Director of Techstars Sydney, and I'm looking for diverse and unstoppable founders who are using technology to solve the world's biggest problems to join this Accelerator cohort. The 12 successful businesses will get access to our 13-week mentor-driven accelerator, $120,000 US investment, and access to the Techstars network for life. Head to our Accelerator webpage to learn more and to apply. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, founder of the Day One Network, which is bringing the history of the Australian startup ecosystem to you. I believe in founders. It's why I do everything I do at Day One and our media company, W2D1 Media. And that's why the Day One Network exists, to create helpful content for founders. We've got some great shows in development, but a large part of what we do couldn't be done without support from our partners and sponsors. And I couldn't be happier than to be working with NTP, who get community better than any other technology recruitment company out there. A Newcastle company like mine, NTP, are invested in seeing the growth of the local tech community in Newcastle, Sydney, and more broadly, Australia. So thank you, NTP, for helping us bring helpful content to founders and the startup community in Australia. Back to the interview. The Startup Podcast is excited to partner with Until Now, an incredible product and brand studio with proven experience in developing successful businesses and brands, including the iconic Airtasker, Karma, Spriggy, and Path Zero. We're putting our money where our mouths are on this one. Until Now even redesigned our brand. We think it looks fantastic, and we're beyond impressed with the process and people. Whether you're a startup, scale-up, or corporate venture, Until Now runs a cross-functional approach to solving your product, brand, and go-to-market challenges. Head to their website for more examples and to get in touch. You're listening to The Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris. And I'm Yaniv. And today we're going to talk about the VC slaughterhouse. <laughs> Don't let investors kill your dreams as a founder. Now, I'm going to let Yanev set this up because he's really fired up about it. But this is a topic that fires me up too. I'm fired up. This is going to be a more fired up episode than usual. So I was speaking to a young founder yesterday. And of course, I will not be naming any names in this episode. But I believe this founder has a really incredible product without giving too much away. The key thing to understand here is that this company is building a product that has a user-generated content aspect to it. The more data end consumers put into the product, the more valuable that data set becomes. There are obviously other companies that do this, right? YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. This is nothing new for consumer companies to become the place where user-generated content is hosted and to leverage all of that content to create the core business stream. They've got a tremendous product. They've got some really exciting early traction on both sides, the enterprise side and on the user side. And so this founder is looking to raise at the seed stage. So this is an early stage company. And this is the context in which I was talking to them yesterday. And they were showing me their business plan, their monetization plan. And they were like, okay, so stage two of what we're doing is to monetize the data. But stage one is we're going to charge users of this product, the people who are putting that data in like 15 bucks a month to keep using this product after they've put in their first five bits of data. And what do you think about that? And I was like, well, that actually makes no sense, right? It makes no sense. Why does it not make any sense? 
because if your ultimate source of value is to have as much of this user-generated content as possible, you don't want to do anything to get in the way of people giving you that data. It would be like if YouTube charged people to upload videos. Well, they don't, right? Instead, they actually make it really easy to upload and they eventually start paying you. If you want to become part of the YouTube Partner Program, you get paid for uploading your content. Why? Having all of that content is what makes YouTube valuable. There are companies that pay you to host video. A Vimeo comes to mind. That's a fuck ton smaller than YouTube. That's playing small. So I said, what's going on here, right? Like, I feel like you understand what your dreams are. Why is this your business plan? And they're like, well investors are telling us we need to show revenue in order to be able to continue to raise. And I was like, yeah, that's what I thought. I could sense the dead hand of investors on this, right? And okay, why does this make me so upset? It's because this is thinking small and this is compromising your dreams before you've even tried to realize them. We've got these promising founders who are doing everything right. They're doing this for the first time. They don't have all the experience. They're talking to investors. They're listening to these investors' advice. And what the investors are telling them is think small, compromise your dreams, just bring in revenue now. And that makes no sense at an early stage, right? The whole point of the venture capital ecosystem, Chris, we've talked about this before, is it allows you to defer the point at which you need to become profitable. If you are profitable from day one, then you don't need venture capital. Chris, going all the way back to episode one, small business syndrome, that was the term that we used back then, right? This idea that you should be running a startup the way you run a conventional small business. Make a bit of money, use that money to grow, whatever. Fine, if that's what you're doing, why do you need VCs at all? The VCs who are giving this advice, I feel, are basically saying, okay, you don't need us. But also the problem with that is it puts a ceiling on the size that you're going to get. Our advice is always know the game you're going to play. If you're a founder and you want to build a business that maybe has a chance of a good industry trade acquisition at a $50 million valuation, then maybe you can sort of focus on bringing in the revenue as early as possible. But if you want to be that unicorn, that billion dollar company, and you start trying to monetize too early, you add friction, you slow the growth, you slow your own flywheel, then you are fucking your business. And You've got investors telling you to fuck your business and naive founders, or not even naive, just founders who are less experienced, taking that advice as though it were good advice. And it breaks my heart. <laughs> I haven't seen you this fired up on the podcast for a while. This is awesome. <laughs> I love it. So just to be clear, what you're talking about is founders who have a vision to build a disruptive company that changes the way an industry works or that mm -hmm. once achieving scale, the flywheel or the network effects create some kind of net new opportunity that is incredibly powerful, disruptive, new and novel. And these founders are encountering VCs who are ostensibly there to fund this kind of ambitious, high-scale growth tech company who are telling them, no, you should run this more like a traditional business and you should race mm -hmm. towards revenue and you should flip this B2C idea on its head to a B2B and you should prop up incumbents and you should on and on and on, right? And what we're not talking about here is a founder who is passionate about building a business tool. They want to build zero for accounting for businesses or they want to build Slack for chat within businesses. Those are perfectly fine B2B companies building B2B tools. These are headless tools that make businesses more efficient. That is a very viable, interesting category of product and business. And if you are passionate as a founder about doing that, you should go do that. And if you are passionate as an investor about investing in those companies, you should go do that. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about companies and founders who envisage a new kind of user experience, a new kind of network effect, a new kind of user behavior that the current industry incumbents 
cannot, will not, and should not digest and execute on. And then those founders are being told, go sell it through an incumbent. Go charge the supply side, these users, a little bit of money when what you need to do is race to network effects or race to the end user or disrupt those incumbents. This is just the wrong advice. Wrong, wrong, wrong. And so let's talk about very concrete examples here, okay? We've given these examples maybe three or four times on the show, and we're going to keep giving them because I keep encountering founders who are ostensibly fans of the show, but still haven't figured this out. Uber did not sell taxi dispatch software to taxi. Now, people are quick to say, but Uber had taxis in their app. Yes, Uber allowed taxi to come into the Uber app. They did not mm -hmm. build a taxi dispatch software for taxi companies. This headless white label infrastructure product to enable dispatch for the taxi companies. Netflix did not build a DVD rental CRM for Blockbuster to help them rent out DVDs by mail. Instagram did not build a photo management SDK for brand websites. YouTube did not build Vimeo or Brightkite, which was these enterprise video platforms. And guess what? That's why they succeeded. Uber, Netflix, Instagram, YouTube, they went straight to the end user. They made it free to use in the case of YouTube and Instagram. They made it easy to use in the case of Uber and Netflix. And they disrupted entire industries. That would not, could not happen if they went the other way. And often you'll hear founders push back on this and say, well, we're going to start B2B. And then we're very clever, Chris. Listen to this. We're going to then become B2C. It's brilliant. And it's like, did Amazon do that? Shopify is trying to do that now. And it's a bloody hard thing to do. It's a mess, right? I've never felt that Shopify is going to succeed with what they're trying to do. Well, you know, succeed or fail, there are exceptions to every rule. Absolutely. But they're just trying to poke their head out into the sunlight, right? Like, we're here. Please install our app. <laughs> it's just like crazy town, right? And so yeah. this is bad, bad, bad. I think you were framing it a little bit as like making people do a B2B play when it should be B2C. And I think you're right. That's probably the most common case of this, but this is broader than that. And in fact, the example that prompted my rant, like I said, this is B2C either way, but it's more about, are you going to monetize the consumers or monetize the content that they supply? And the plan that was put forward was both, which makes no sense, right? Because you've got completely different models. So YouTube and Vimeo, Vimeo actually, especially at the beginning, they started out as being consumer. They're like, we're better than YouTube, higher quality, higher definition, whatever. But if you want to host your videos on Vimeo, you pay us for it because we're providing you a valuable service. And YouTube was like, upload everything you can. And guess what's bigger today, right? Vimeo is a fine business. And if what you want to build is a service, whether it's B2B or B2C that you're asking people to pay for, then fine. But if you have a different end in mind, and especially if that's an end that relies on network effects, relies on aggregation, relies on flywheels, and that premature monetization will get in the way of that flywheel, then you probably shouldn't be doing that. And that is what venture capital is for. That's what drives me crazy. Folks who are devoting their days to being venture capitalists and not understanding what their role is here is to allow companies to build up these massive flywheels. And sometimes it takes years. Sometimes it takes multiple rounds before they become profitable. That's your job, venture capitalists. So why are you forcing folks to monetize early if it's not in the long-term interest of what is trying to be built? You're absolutely right. The original sin here, the unifying circumstance between switching from B2C to B2B or for trying to monetize end users prematurely when you're trying to create a network effect or a marketplace is this obsession with revenue and yeah. to use revenue as the leading indicator of validation. And so what we want to discuss for the rest of the episode is why does this happen and what ends up happening? 
as a result for these companies, for these founders who end up going down this wrong route. And so the reason it ends up happening is typically one of two things. One is capital constraints for a startup. So they just have not been able to raise money or they have not raised money yet. And they feel like the path forward to keep the lights on, to pay salaries and so on, is we just got to chase the revenue. We got to get the revenue in the door to keep the lights on. The runway has run out or we've never had a runway and we need to think about clients and customers and charging and just getting money in the door to keep everything running. And the second reason this happens is dumb money. This is money that is risk averse. They come from traditional business thinking, or they have LPs who are putting all of these unnecessary constraints on their deal terms and deal types. And they're like, you need to go get revenue right away, right away. It's a downturn, get revenue right away now. Or they come from a background where they don't understand B2C. And they think it's easier to go get revenue from customers and easier to go to market through incumbents because the incumbents have all the users. So surely it's easier to go sell your photo management app or your video app or your taxi dispatch app. Just go sell it to the taxi companies. They already have all the riders, right? Yeah. Why in the world would you try to go get your own riders? You got free distribution or even paid distribution through taxi, Uber. Just go to taxi. And that's just like so dumb. B2B is not easier than B2C. It's not. I actually wrote a whole post about all of the reasons why B2B is really hard. It's different, but it's not easier. It's sometimes faster to your first dollar, but it's not easier and it's not more scalable. And so you just have to be really understand those two mechanics is traditional business thinking and risk aversion. I just wanted to add a little bit of color to that. I completely agree with it. So first of all, I just want to be clear that we're not arguing against revenue. We love revenue. I love revenue. And eventually every business needs to bring in revenue. It needs to bring in profit, right? It needs to bring in large, positive, discounted future cash flow. However you want to think about it, right? This is not about revenue. This is about timing of revenue. And that is where, going back to that small business syndrome concept that we discussed in the very first episode of this podcast, knowing the game you're playing, the point of venture capital, the point of startups is to say, we think the best way to maximize our future discounted cash flow is to be burning money for quite a long time until we reach a scale where we can, thanks to the economics of software and various other things, thanks to network effects, we can massively monetize what we've built. Revenue is important. This is capitalism, folks. So we're not saying that revenue doesn't matter. But again, in previous episodes, we've talked about this, that the game of iterative fundraising is about iterative de-risking of the end vision of the end state. Revenue can quite often be an appropriate way of de-risking something. If people are willing to pay you for something, that's a pretty strong signal. So again, we're not saying this is never right, but to view revenue at an early stage, at the seed stage, even at the series A stage, as like the most important or the only validation point, the only thing you should be de-risking, to me is crazy. And especially if revenue is actually making it harder to de-risk other things, right? Again, if you've got network effects or flywheel effects, growth is not just something that can like eventually increase your profit. It's a thing that can actually increase your product market fit. And so if revenue hinders growth and you get further away from that because you are focusing on making money instead of growing, or you're focusing, to your point, Chris, on appeasing incumbents instead of disrupting them or whatever it is, you're basically lowering the ceiling on what you can ever achieve. You are putting yourself in a box and you might get that $50 million exit, but you probably won't get that billion dollar exit. And you know, that should be clear as well. When I'm talking about valuations, of course, that's important. Of course, people want to make a whole lot of money if they're a founder, most of them. But most founders I know as well, they have a vision. The money is important but it's nearly secondary to the vision of something they want to bring into the world. So this is, I'm just using these valuations as a proxy for scale of impact. If you want to have a really impactful product that changes the world in some sense, and you allow investors to kill that dream, well, to me, that's really sad. And it's so unnecessary. 
Yeah, the killing the dream thing breaks my heart. We keep adding this caveat. It's about what the founder's dream is and what the goal of the company is. And so I keep saying, you want to go build Slack or build Zero and target B2B, or if you're building a business that is building utility for a user and you charge them for that utility, then that makes sense. If you're trying to build network effects or build a consumer product and you get derailed, that does not make sense. And Yanev, I want to really press hard on something you said. If it turns out that your business benefits from scale or network effects, you know, as a software powered company, I want to emphasize this is called the startup podcast, not the small business podcast. Amen. Startup <laughs> suggests it is a Silicon Valley style, software powered, high scale company. That's what venture capital is about. The startup model is rooted in the idea that software powers scale that cost to serve is incremental or nearly zero. And all of the gains are achieved at scale. If you imagine the cost curve, if you're looking at the video, the cost curve is flat and your revenue curve or your growth curve is exponential. And so unlike a normal business, your costs grow and your revenue grows and you try to maximize that margin a little bit and that margin is your profit. No. With software, your costs start off way above your revenue line, and then you achieve escape velocity, and that curve goes exponential, and then there's a massive area under the curve because the cost to serve is incrementally zero. And that's the game of a software-powered, digital, Silicon Valley-style startup. So scale is king. Scale is everything. And so anything you do that creates headwind to achieving that escape velocity, that hockey stick curve, that exponential curve, and making that area under the curve massive is you're short cheating the outcome. As Yanev, you're saying you're putting a ceiling on the curve. And what happens is the VC model stops being relevant because the VC model is rooted in that exponential curve. That's not what VC is for. Go get a loan, go get venture debt, go bootstrap, go do something else. And so get out of the VC game if you don't understand that and get out of the, I'm running a startup game. You know, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a business operator, but you're not a Silicon Valley style startup founder. We've talked about this from our very first episode, this difference between these mentalities. But I think the thing we're really emphasizing today is VCs who are in the game of funding these exponential curves, ostensibly, are the ones who are corrupting the founder intent. And that is just heartbreaking. So let's talk about some concrete examples, common examples, where VCs are giving the exact wrong advice to companies. The first one that we'd like to talk about is VCs killing founder dreams of an incredible consumer product. So the founder has imagined a really beautiful, delightful, disruptive experience that they want end users to pick up and use and change their behavior around and eliminate waste and friction and pain and suffering from someone's life because of the way other companies do this, right? So imagine, again, let's use Uber as an example. Before, it was really hard to book a taxi. It was hit or miss, at least in the US, whether the taxi would actually show up or they would stop and pick someone else up on the side of the street. You had to fumble through your credit card. You had to pay an enormous fee. The cars were disgusting. And so Uber's dream was, let's empower people to press a button, get a ride every time in a nice, clean car and be able to just magically get out and the bill is already paid. That's a disruptive change to the taxi industry. We can talk about other industries as well, Netflix and Instagram, whatever. Investors say, no, 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 
that's hard. B2C is hard. Making money from individual users is hard. You should just go to the incumbents. In the case of Uber, go to Taxi. In the case of YouTube, go to Enterprise Customers. In the case of Netflix, you should go to Blockbuster. And you should sell them some great software. And then they will on-sell that or they will on-service that to end users. And so the sin here, the VC sin, is killing the dream of an incredible disruptive B2C company in favor of a limited outcome, limited scale B2B company. And so that's big sin number one. The next big sin is killing the founder's dream to create really powerful network effects and flywheels. So think about iPhone, for example. Now, Apple charges like a $100 developer fee to be an iPhone developer because a nominal fee to get rid of tire kickers and time wasters and what have you. But other than that, it's free to develop for iPhone. Can you imagine if they charged money for support and platform fees and service fees to become an iPhone developer? And you don't actually have to go too far. You don't have to imagine it. That was called dumb phones, feature phones, right? Prior to iPhone, you had to pay money to the manufacturer, Nokia or whatever, or to networks to get what they called on deck, to actually have the precious right to be on the phone. And how much innovation occurred on those phones? Zero. And think about Xbox, for example, right? Xbox, the saying in a business like Xbox is, content is king. Can you imagine if Microsoft charged exorbitant fees in order to even start testing or playing or using an Xbox to build a game? Of course not. It's crazy, right? Another good example from the world of phones on the other part of the ecosystem is Android versus Windows Phone, right? So Apple is different. They're vertically integrated. But we had two right. operating systems for mobile phones, Android and Windows Phone. Android was open source and made it cheap and easy for phone OEMs to install Android and sell Android devices. Microsoft, they pivoted too late when they saw what was happening to them. They charged licensing fees for their operating system. And so what happened? All the OEMs chose Android. And by the time Microsoft got wise to it, the network effects had taken place. Android was the clear number two after Apple. And that is something that became so entrenched that it's hard to imagine it ever changing now until there's a complete platform shift. Yeah, that's right. They tried to rinse and repeat their desktop strategy, right? Charge for Windows and off you go. They beat Linux to the punch. They did a better job. And they thought, oh, this is just Linux and Windows all over again. We can own this with a proprietary OS and we can win again. And it didn't work. And this is not because Windows Phone was worse. Windows CE had been around for years, years and years and years. And Windows Phone was a delightful, slick little thing had amazing sound effects and visual metaphors. And this was not a poor software problem. This was a poor business model problem. And so there are just many, many, many examples. Imagine Etsy or eBay charging money to be able to list your products or to get access to their marketplace, right? The supply side of most marketplaces is the hardest part most of the time, not always. And so you want to make that as easy as possible, as free as possible to get people onboarded and start creating content, listing their products, just to kickstart that flywheel. The third and final example here, there are many more, of course, is VCs killing the founder's dream about scale, of really getting to massive growth and massive scale and having that huge impact on the world, which is partly the B2B thing. But it's just this idea of like, go through gatekeepers, go through distribution partners, 
I have a startup I'm working with where like the strategy was to partner with banks. It's like banks are the slowest people in the world. Just go scrape the data out of the banks using web scraping or just go get plaid to connect to bank accounts, right? Like you do not need the permission of banks to go to market with a product that happens to use bank data. And so it's just this idea of just like relinquishing your control, relinquishing power of your own destiny because VCs, they come from an old world and partnerships are the way to go and you need to go sidle up to investors because they have power over the market and they don't. They don't have power of the market. Yeah, I think partnerships is something that I've often been very, very nervous about. And we've had episodes about this, of course, but great partnerships thoughtfully executed as part of a cohesive strategy can be fantastic. But what happens is, yes, quite often founders either push themselves or are pushed into partnerships that exactly to your point, relinquish control relinquish control over the product, relinquish control over timelines. And, you know, especially you mentioned banks. I've had this exact experience working with a bank. Remember, giant institutions are not going to move at startup pace. So you're going to be, just when you're trying to get off the ground, you're going to be in endless meetings and there'll be delays and security reviews and goodness knows what else. You're going to be moving at large bank pace. And do you want to do that? So as much as possible, if you want to maintain your autonomy, if you want to maintain control over your own destiny, be really careful who you get into bed with and be really careful of investors who think that the right thing to do is to immediately glom onto a giant incumbent. We should have a whole episode about this, but the word partnership covers all manner of sins. I see founders who call their customers partners. Like they're not partners, they're customers. If you're charging them money for a standardized product, they're your customers. Stop calling them partners. It's a completely different motion to create partnerships versus customers. And then there's affiliate partnerships where you give people a code or a link and they can send users your way. That's great. That's fantastic. You're not partnering. They're just affiliates. Anybody can be an affiliate. Send me traffic. I'll give you commission all day long. You don't charge them money. So a lot of people are like, well, we charge those people money for permission to send traffic to us. It's like, are you fucking crazy? These guys are sending you traffic. They're sending you users. Your billable unit is a subscription from an end user. Why are you charging partners, quote unquote partners, to send you traffic? That's insane. Yep. Vendor partnerships. Well, they're not partnerships. They're vendors. They're selling you their shit. So find a standard contract, sign it, and be done with it. They're not your partners, right? And then there's suppliers in your marketplace. They provide some kind of product or service to the demand side of your marketplace. Well, you know, Uber calls them driver partners, but like you're not cutting custom deals with them. It's not a biz dev motion. It is a standardized operational motion. And so, yeah, you might like for regulatory reasons, call them partners, but they're your supply side inputs. And so you've got to be really careful about this term partnerships, right? There's another term that I just posted about on LinkedIn, community. These companies <laughs> starting communities. It's like, why are you starting community? That community means a lot of different things. That's an episode for another day. Yeah, well, I think there's maybe an episode about use of language, actually, Chris. I've always been a bit of a nitpicker and a bit precise about my use of yeah. language. And yes, it's because this is not just superficial. You can end up doing some really crazy shit by using, yeah. you know, one word that means multiple different things. Yeah, no, it's not nitpicking. As the audience probably knows by now, my day job is working with a small handful of companies to help them avoid all these landmines and just fast forward to the right answer, right? And very often I end up being the arbiter of vocabulary, right? Yeah. Like, well, what do you mean by partnership. Well, we have four or five different kinds of partners. Then they each should have a different name. And by the way, two or three of those are dumb. Stop doing that. 
And these two, they're not partners. That's a customer and that's an affiliate relationship. Let's get very precise about the product we're building for them, the value props we're putting in front of them, the pitch we're articulating to them, the onboarding flow we're giving them, and the billing model and, and business model in which we're engaging with them. And guess what? Now we can scale that. Now we can understand how it fits into our business. Is it an input? Is it an output? Is it a distribution? You know, I can spend weeks and weeks and weeks having these conversations with founders, and it is most definitely not nitpicking. It is driving consensus through vocabulary and through best practices, depending on what exactly they you are speaking my love language chris it's interesting to wonder why this is happening i think there's this meme of the zero interest rate phenomenon right 10 minute delivery apps could only thrive when the cost of capital was incredibly low there was definitely this huge proliferation of funds that are calling themselves venture capital funds or seed stage investment funds that came about you know software is eating the world tech is becoming more and more important but i'm wondering chris to what extent there are a lot of these less experienced funds that are zero interest rate phenomena where capital was just really available and people who weren't students of venture capital who weren't really understanding this asset class startups are an asset class if you're viewing it from the perspective of an investor right they don't understand the asset class that they're investing in and because vc has 10-year return cycles right typical length of a fund is 10 years it takes 10 years for the tide to go out and to see who's not wearing pants. It's interesting, actually. You reminded me that this is a phenomena that's occurring across civilization almost. This kind of demystification of expertise and elitism and of hard jobs. Like, I'm a big TV and movie nerd, and I pay very close attention to directors and writers and actors and the act of creating content, not just consuming it. And a lot of writing these days sucks. A lot of these shows, they're overwritten and the plots are convoluted and the characters are paper thin. And there's a sense of like, there's just this loss of appreciation for great writing techniques. Same thing with politicians, right? Now everybody thinks they can be a politician. You have Trumpism. You have these amateur politicians who don't have any understanding for democracy, freedom of speech, the role of media in a democracy and in free and fair government. And we now have this kind of democratization of investing, right? And like everybody can be an investor. And there's Adeo Risi, who's a good friend of mine who runs VC Lab. He's creating a VC firm a minute. <laughs> just everyone can be a VC firm. You get a VC firm. You get a VC firm. <laughs> and it's just like... Like, there's no appreciation for like what it means the craft. for the craft of being an investor in venture capital. Now, again, I want to be very careful. I almost said this in the last three episodes. I don't want to be the old man shaking his fist at the democratization of access and the leveling of a playing field. I think that is a fundamental good on balance. But yep. what is also a fundamental good is understanding the craft that you're participating in, learning, listening, reading, and paying attention to what's going on. And you're right, Yanev. I don't think it's just zero interest rate phenomena. I think it's, I mean, if they can be a venture capitalist, I'll be a venture capitalist. Well, I have made a bit of money in real estate. I can be a venture capitalist. It seems like mm. startup of the hot thing. Let's go do that. And it's just like, it's really, it's heartbreak. I think zero interest rates accelerated it, but I agree with everything you say. It's awful that elite has turned into a slur. Yes. That's crazy. But also when we talk about the democratization of investment, you know, there's like Robin Hood and all that stuff. And I'm like, okay, if people want to lose their own money by being bad investors, that's up to them. But what's true about venture capital that's not true in many other asset classes is that the investors are active, not passive, meaning they influence the outcome. Like if people just want to piss their money away, 
play, be my guest. Again, that's capitalism. The problem of dumb money isn't that it just chooses the wrong investments to make and loses its own returns. It's that it has this negative influence on the startups that it invests in. And that's really the problem here. And the thing that's getting us fired up. We've both either been founders or are founders. We know how hard it is. We know how much of themselves people put into it. And to see anything that reduces their chances, which are already fairly low, let's admit it, right? That's what we're talking about, these exponential return curves. Most startups fail. To make those odds even lower of a really great outcome, it's just not okay. Yeah, and there are second order effects, right? If these founders have real innovation that they're trying to deploy into the world, and they are being misdirected into dead ends or placing a ceiling on their potential growth and impact. This has a real impact on the pace of innovation. Part of the reason I'm passionate about startups is because I think they're the most effective vehicle, the most effective device we have for generating new ideas, new innovation, and moving society forward in a rapid way. And so this is not just an investment class for me or not just a day job, but it's a way for moving civilization forward with investors breaking the dreams of founders and founder dreams breaking the ability to deploy and founders failing to manifest their dreams, breaking innovation for society is this like really terrible cascading domino effect that really, really sucks. And it also affects startup ecosystems. You know, we have listeners all over the world, Chris, but we're based in a smaller ecosystem here. And again, the ecosystem also requires a sort of exponential return, the breakouts, right? And, you know, here in Australia, I guess we've really only seen two true global breakouts. One is Atlassian, which was more or less bootstrapped. The second is Canva, which I think did benefit from some very wise and patient investors. We could have had more. We could have had more of these true decacorn, whatever, globally significant companies if we'd had more investors who are willing to back companies for longer before they tried to monetize. Because I also think what we have here, and I think this is true in many parts of the world, is a lot of companies that are, yes, prematurely monetizing. They're big they're making money, but they're not globally significant and they never will be. And so again, another thing that makes us hard is like, okay, if we've got a company that's like bringing in $30 million in revenue and it's worth 400 million, it's hard to say, you know, you guys screwed up, but you know, yeah. it's the counterfactual. It's what could have been that really is sad. All right, let's bring this one home. All right. So this one was a little bit more ranty and passionate than the others. And hopefully that's a little bit of fun for the audience, maybe a little less structured, a little less calm and measured, but you can tell Yanev and I really, really care about this and we care about it because we care about founders, because we care about innovation. And frankly, we care about investors. We care about investors having great returns. Each part of this ecosystem is really essential. And in small, nascent startup ecosystems, these kind of mistakes, these kind of misunderstandings are very costly. They can add anywhere from 5, 10, to 80% headwind, which is just enough to kill your babies before they're born. And that, that's tragic. It's tragic. It's heartbreaking for us. Yes. I think one advantage of having a podcast is to have an audience of hundreds or thousands of people that you can publicly vent to. And I do feel a bit better. So thank you, audience. But as Chris said, there's actually very serious and actionable for founders aspect to all of this, right? I hope you take this away. Do not let investors kill your dreams. And the thing to be explicit about this, it may not be easy, but there are so many fantastic investors out there who will not kill your dreams, who will support you with your dreams. And when you're raising capital, part of your job, a big part of your job is to find those people. Do not settle for the investors who will kill your dreams. Even if it's a bit harder, even if you need to look further afield, again, if you're in a small market, you might need to look for international investors. Chris, you just had a whole episode recently about moving to the US. Don't settle. You're going to be putting so much of your life force into this thing. Don't settle for investors who will kill your dream. 
part of doing this is knowing that the advice you're getting from those investors is not good advice and that there are other people out there. Because I think one of the things that happens is people start to feel defeated. They hear from a few investors, oh, you need to start monetizing or you should partner with existing players. And eventually they grudgingly start to believe that. And then they will take those investors' money and that is the end of the dream. So this doesn't have to be you. That's really the actionable advice and the words of encouragement from this episode. Now, just very quickly, I want to provide a little bit of counterbalance to this and a little bit of devil's advocate. There is very often, I'll say almost always, the need for a founder and for a startup to compromise in the form of thin slicing, in the form of focus, starting with an embarrassingly narrow minimum viable product and iterating toward their ultimate vision. There is a difference between that and contortion to switch from a B to C idea to a B to B idea to switch from a go-to-market strategy that is self-reliant to a go-to-market strategy that is reliant on go-to-market partners, to switch from a flywheel business to charging users up front, charging your supply side of a marketplace or a network effect business up front. These are not thin slicing compromises. These are contortions. These are corruptions of your original intent. Knowing the difference between those two things, well, we've given some examples here, but is sometimes an art, it's sometimes rooted in experience, it's sometimes rooted in asking for the right advice. And so this is a gotcha that you need to watch out for. It's not sometimes very obvious. Absolutely right. We're not advocating boiling the ocean and realizing your dream on day one. We're advocating not allowing you to be distracted from your dream. I'm going to say that. We had Nirayal on talking about the difference between traction and distraction. And traction is about taking actions that move you closer to your goal, right? So if your goal is your dream, which it should be, then make sure you always have traction and doing these things is a distraction. So don't let this happen to you. I love that. Yes. Is it on the critical path to success? Is it thin slices iteratively getting you to success? Or is it a distraction, a side journey, a fork in the road? As I said, it takes a bit of taste and experience and intuition and what have you to get that right. But it's essential that you understand the difference between those two things. Now, you know, Chris, I know you do a lot of things, but one of them is to make sure that people stay true to their dreams and you provide advice when fundraising as well. So if people want your help around some of the challenges that they might be facing on this very topic, how can they connect with you? Yeah, exactly. As I touched on earlier, I find myself doing that day in and day out as part of my startup advisory. So if you want to learn more about that, feel free to visit chrissard.com slash advisory. I work with a small handful of companies in a given time. So let me know what you're doing. And if there's time and there's a fit, we can partner up on that. Every time I've referred someone to you, Chris, they get to talk to you for a bit. They come back basically with their mind blown and very grateful for the opportunity. So folks, I highly recommend reaching out to Chris and hopefully getting some of that help that you might think that you need. That's very kind. And also don't forget the startup pact. Yeah, I know you're awesome at describing this usually, but I'll give it a go. If you've listened to the show even just a few times and felt like you've gotten a ton of value from it, the only thing we ask for in return is to please subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app, rate us and review us in that same app. And recently we just launched our new YouTube channel. So please go give us a subscription over there. It'll help more founders discover the show and help us to help more companies succeed. Absolutely. Okay, that was fun, Chris. Thank you for, for my therapy session this morning. No worries. That's awesome. Have a great week. Have a great week. See you later, guys. Bye-bye.